The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. Previously on Carol's Last Christmas. A normal police called me. We tracked down the sketch artist who crafted a composite drawing of a key suspect. The detail work in, in that sketch is remarkable. Based on an eyewitness account. I came in to meet the fellow. I was just intent on listening to what he said. A guy wearing a stocking cap with um, a relatively neat beard and hair down over his collar. A drawing that would wrongly remain the centerpiece of this cold case for decades. He ended up with this sketch that was a bearded character. Kind of describe it for me as you recall. This guy, uh, Oh, okay, I haven't looked at that in 30 years. I'll be darned. It might be... We have chosen to omit names or use sound effects in this production because the individuals discussed have not been formally arrested, charged, or accused of wrongdoing in the death of Carol Rofstead. The normal police department declined to participate in this podcast. Well, I can remember seeing him on campus because it kind of stood out. The campus and community was on the lookout for two bearded men, one tall, the other shorter. And there was someone who looked remarkably like the expertly drawn witness sketch created after the murder. He was older than us, probably, I don't know, five, six, seven years older. And he had long hair and most I mean yeah it was in the hippie days too and people had that but he always had on this like army fatigues I can't say he was in the army but like green heavy jacket and green pants. Carol had been attacked in her room in July of 74. Remember Mr. Green Jeans? We now know the sketch is not reliable but there were other reasons to be suspicious of the ambitious, outspoken, volatile. He knew too much. There's nobody in the state of Illinois who's going to think for three minutes that this guy made those two phone calls. She, she got beaten up and she's, she almost got killed and now she's dead. And he knows it before anyone else. That's a gr- that's a great freaking story, just on its own, isn't it? If he was that active in the student senate, I'm thinking he had to have some kind of intelligence to be able to maintain that job. He became acquainted with our house because one of our sorority sisters on the senate brought him over to just kind of see the house and where she lived. My sister introduced him to Carol and said something about being in the student senate or, you know, which was kind of, you know, political and they make decisions for the school and budgets and blah, blah, blah. And so she, she was kind of a quick wit and just came back with like a little snide remark about, I don't know, 
if it was political or about, oh, you know, all you guys making decisions. I don't know what she said. But I do know that he snapped. That was the first incident of this person being in our house. I I can remember after Carol's murder, um, just a few months later, that there was something in the vedette about him attacking a woman and trying to choke her death in a parking lot. And that's when you start thinking, oh my gosh, really? And then you're, you're kind of putting two and two together thinking, wow, maybe there was vendetta against Carol, but maybe this man just hates women so badly. I didn't know until I reread um, a bunch of the hidden stuff that you sent me. Did you know that he, he was charged with beating two other people? From Genuine Human Productions, this is Carol's Last Christmas. I'm a criminal, so despicable, Chapter 4 Where's the Weapon? There's a lot of traps that you can fall into during an investigation, and tunnel vision is one of the major ones. We found this video on the internet featuring James Trainum, a retired DC detective. It basically happens when you become so focused in on a suspect or a theory that you start to ignore anything else that comes in during that time that might provide some sort of alternative explanation or alternative suspect. It's something that is actually contagious. Uh, It can be passed along from the investigator to the prosecutor to the judge. It's just a natural way that we deal with information. It's one of the shortcuts that we take. There are ways to guard against it. There are ways to prevent it. It mostly involves having somebody looking over your shoulder, checking your work, playing devil's advocate. Having one investigator um, confronting another investigator about their work is like uh, it's like having two bears fighting each other, you know. It is absolutely unequivocal that the people that I talked to in 2008 fucking hated. Has the Rofsted case gone unsolved for nearly half a century because of police tunnel vision? The woman who was walking home with Carol that December night in 1975, the last person to see her alive, remembers a conversation with the lead detective. You know, there was all kinds of ways that was pointing to him, and um, they just, you know, they knew it was him. They told me so. Who did? Hmm. 
How soon in the investigation? We're talking like early on? Yep. Hmm. Yep. On our, on our ride up to Pekin, he said so. He told me about all of his assault cases and how he always got them dropped because the he would frighten the women into recanting. Um, and he also said, as I know he's still alive, he also said that if I ever said that he said that, he would call me a liar. So... Presented with little or no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you appreciate our work, please consider making a donation to help. Thanks for supporting Carol and our work. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. Tunnel vision is going to cause you to do things or to miss evidence or to screw that case up somehow, which is going to result in either the case getting dropped or the person being found not guilty. It's when you begin to totally ignore or disregard anything that may upset your theory. That's when it becomes dangerous. All, all of these are the tips and clues and leads that came in primarily in the first 30 days or 45 days or 60 days after the crime. It seems to me that maybe only six or seven of the 22 were, uh, were followed up uh, in any way, shape, or form. Let's go through them. I know it's going to be a little exhaustive, but... That's okay. December 24th, 1975. A caller says a teenager molested a two-year-old girl at the same address. Police promise to follow up, but there's no report of that. On the same day, another caller reminds police that a man hit one of their officers in the head with a wine bottle. A follow-up is suggested, but not documented. December 25th. Police review old arrests involving the sorority house address. A man was arrested for peeping in the windows and later suspected of rape in Peoria, but eventually released. Detectives ask for his mugshot, though there's no follow-up in the file. December 26th. Two friends of Carol call, suspicious of a guy she turned down for a date. He left for Arizona that day, but would return. There's no report of a follow-up conversation. They blew that off, and there was, there was, there was never any follow-up on that either. December 26th, a call about a guy who had beaten up a waitress at a bar. Police write down his address, but apparently never follow up. December 29th, police gather a list of names present at a party Carol attended two days before the attack. It lists the name of someone who walked Carol home. Was he ever questioned again? We don't know. The 30th of December, a woman walks into the police station to report that her husband was a sadist who reached sexual climax by beating women. She claims he's raped and beaten other women who were too afraid to report him. The detective says a follow-up will be done, but it's nowhere in the file. There was no follow-up on that. 
and the reason why the reasoning was because the wife had some kind of mental illness um, and whatever. But that's that's not a reason to say that she wasn't credible. A man is questioned and claims he was shooting pool on the night of the attack. He admits he was with two other potential suspects, though the file contains no follow-up. A detective calls the FBI about a known rapist who might be a suspect. It's noted that the rape, quote, did not involve violence. That suspect is apparently eliminated. January 30th, 1976. Illinois State Trooper called stating that he knew a suspect who fit the description of the water offender. The report states suspect who was in jail on the day after, after Carol died, and he had no idea where he was at the time of the crime. Uh, based upon these comments, uh, no further investigation was required. Well, um, I would put a great big red Y the F not, because there's nothing in here to clear this person of anything. Two detectives travel to Brimfield, Illinois, to check out a lead that someone's confessed. They leave a message with that man's girlfriend. He calls back and denies the confession. We can find nothing more in the file. The police never followed up and ever talked to the owners of the cellar. Despite the fact that the last place Carol was socially before both attacks was the cellar. That's crazy. That's that's absolutely crazy. March the 6th. Police hear about someone who looks like the composite sketch. They contact him in St. Louis, and he agrees to a polygraph, but there's no record it was ever done. November 22, 1976. A woman says she heard that a man had confessed to the murder at a party at 404 East Vernon Street in Normal. She says she reported it in the past to police. The man regularly wore a knit cap and military coat. They go to his house, but he's not there. During my talk with Blacktown, I learned that a person named Blacktown had made the statement at a party that he was the person that killed Carol. Blacktown stated that she had told this department of this some time ago. Get this. But in conversation with members of this department, I cannot locate anyone who remembers anything like this. So it goes without saying that, was, that, that nobody actually followed up on this and made a, a supplementary report. Mm-hmm. Somebody said they did it and nobody went and talked to them. We determined that Blacked Out lived at 404 East Burn, apartment Blacked Out. And they forgot. Thank you very much that they forgot to black out uh, the address. He has since returned to his hometown of Kiwani and is presently residing there. An attempt to, uh, was made to speak to him on this date, but he was out of town. We did talk to his roommate from 404, who also now lives in Kikiwani. His name is Blacked Out, and he has no knowledge or reason to believe 
that Blackdown would be involved in any way, but he did state uh, to the effect that Blackdown likes to talk a lot and has a reputation for this in his hometown. He, he had a beard, wore a sacking cap, and a military coat a lot. Sounds like but it can't be because he's not from Kwani. In, in 1975, it's not like it's 1910, okay? <laughs> you still had forensics going on. You still had, you know, a lot of things. This retired financial advisor was on the ISU basketball team in 75. I was I was in the cellar that night. I didn't know Carol Rostad, but I knew kind of who she was. And I saw her down there. And then I don't remember, but it was... Uh, a couple of days after maybe New Year's that it came out in the paper. Mm -hmm. And and I go, holy criminy, we were down there that night. He was actually interviewed by police after calling the department himself. I did call him. He came by the the dormitory at that time and 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 interviewed me as to what 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 I knew and what I saw and all that kind of thing. And that's how basically how I got involved with it. Did you know her by name or did they have a picture no. of her? Yeah. They had a picture of her. And yeah. you you recognized her immediately. Yes, correct. Was she with a guy, girl, do you recall? You know what? I don't even recall. You know, we talked at um in Waterson Towers at my dorm room uh, and he just took notes. We've never located a written report about that voluntary interview. Granted, this was a small police force in a college town before cell phones or computers. How it got shoved underneath the rug and if there's somebody paying somebody to be quiet, you know, or, you know, why is this has not, it's not been solved. Yeah. Um, I don't understand it. Um, The the person, the biggest person of interest is a, a guy by the name And there were rumors about pressure coming from powerful people, including parents. And father um, basically had written letters to the normal police department and said, back it off. Or even the ISU administration. And if you don't back it off, we're going to have some lawsuits. And somebody did. They backed it off. And I'm, I'm going, I don't understand. Why would you take... You know, if, if you if you truly thought that this was a person of interest, why do you sit there and shut her down? If I wanted to be a cop, the normal cop would be the greatest job in the world because all you do is you you bust college kids for pissing in the weeds. You know, that's it. I mean, it, there's the, the, particularly back in the '70s, there was never any big crime. You know, you know, in, in normal Illinois. You know, you, you had a murder in your town. If you don't have someone that knows how to handle a murder, then you call somebody that does. I'm not exaggerating if I told you that o- over the years, I've, I've been contacted by 20, 25 different cops that, in different suburban police departments and once or twice in Chicago and whatever and say, Hey, do you want to look at this? And just, uh, we, we just like another set of eyes. 
But for every department like that, where somebody is humble enough to say, hey, just take a look, there's, there's 25 departments where they say, I am stupid and I am arrogant and I'm never telling you anything. Get the fuck away. Presented with little to no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you enjoy our work, please consider making a donation to help. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. So here we are. Who are your top three suspects at this point in time? Number one, because she mocked him. He was a maniac. I mean, he was an absolute freaking maniac, and she mocked him. She poked the bear. Yeah, that's a perfect term, you know. Uh, 404 East, East Vernon. And 404 being someone there amongst the group that heard the confession. Who, who could have been. Yeah. The only part of that is that there's absolutely nothing to link him to Kiwani, Illinois. And, and the freak husband who... The beater. If you look at Carol Rofstad, her uh, clothing from the waist down was pulled down. Um, you know, this... <laughs> by, by method of operation, this guy is absolutely freaking perfect. It fits perfectly for somebody who had no no interest in consummating a sexual attack. The the attack itself was the sexual aspect, maybe. But you asked me for my top three. Yeah. What about the window peeper? Uh, well, Is that just incidental? Because remember Golden State. The suspected Golden State Killer, the notorious Golden State Killer. The case remained unsolved for almost four decades. What began as peeping through windows, sneaking into homes and stealing items, would soon turn into murder. No, nothing, nothing, nothing is, is, is incidental. By now you may be asking, what about DNA? DNA collection. It's very simple. We're going to be searching for the evidence. We're going to collect that evidence. We're going to record the evidence. We're going to initial the evidence. We're going to package that evidence and prepare it and transport it to whatever uh, laboratory uh, deemed necessary. The first crime solved through DNA analysis was back in 1986 in England, 11 years after Carol died. But long before that, police were collecting blood, fingerprints, and other evidence. Basically, whatever comes from your body is potential DNA evidence. Blood, semen, saliva, skin tissue, dandruff, bones, teeth, nails, hair, earwax, vaginal cells, rectal urine, feces, sweat. This will all give you DNA. That's Detective Sergeant Joseph Blosis. No mistaking, he's from the NYPD. Yes, I do speak uh, quite quickly. I could probably, uh, they'll say, you know, I, I talk a New York minute. 
He retired after 30 years and more than a thousand homicide cases. Back in the 1980s, if you were to give a biological sample, such as blood, the size of a quarter or a dime, the forensic laboratory would able to be, provide you a DNA profile. In the 90s, through technology and advancements in instrumentation, we're able to reduce that size from a dime to barely visible. Currently today, touch DNA, 10 to 20 skin cells will give you a DNA profile. But in order to get a good DNA sample, you need properly handled evidence. Uh, my next thing on my list here, where do we stand on the murder weapon in a professor's hands? You know what? I, I, don't, I don't know if that's folklore or what. For years, a rumor had been circulating about the murder weapon. Was it a baseball bat? Was it a was it a four by four? Was it a two by two? It had been taken out of evidence by someone. I have one question about an item that is actually listed, and it's just kind of a weird entry. Some of the records we got through Freedom of Information provided a hint. Um, third from the bottom, it talks about two two Polaroids of Exhibit Number Four before and after original package removed. And like exhibit number four is the piece of wood with red stuff on it. So I'm assuming it's the murder weapon. The only normal police officer who spoke with us early on the record was forthcoming. Do you guys keep like an updated evidence list? I guess I'm just wondering like where that evidence would be. It's all. It's all. It's you guys still keep it, vault, right? Because yeah. it's an and, open case. Yes. And yeah. from what I understand, and I can't speak 100% to it, mm-hmm. there are Throughout the years, I, I don't know for a fact, but I've heard that there was some issues with evidence mm-hmm. at times. I would love to meet the cop that gave the murder weapon away to the college professor. Was it somebody he thought could help? Do you know that? I don't know. The records clerk described a supplemental report that had been accidentally left out of the material sent to us. She apologized for the omission. It was like 89 pages. Yeah, it was a, it was a yeah. biggie. What sounded outrageous was revealed in the police file in black and white. September 18th, 1997. The wood had somehow been released for use in a classroom at Illinois State University. It was on display as an actual murder weapon and had been handled by an untold number of people over an unknown amount of time. No prints or DNA due to being in classroom and unprotected. Piece of railroad tie believed to be the murder weapon was later displayed at ISU criminal justice classes, so it has been compromised. sick. That is, you know, what a disgrace to her name to, you know, have somebody have it hanging there like his trophy. We, we've got to um, get that back. We're not going to have a trophy hanging on the wall. And, and whoever that policeman is, I don't, um, we'll have to look into whether that's legal or not for that policeman to have taken the murder weapon. 
number one, it shows awful, awful uh, police work. But number two, it's really, really, really disrespectful to Carol. That is horrible. In my eyes. I don't know who he gave it to. Was it a scientist? I mean, I don't know. Can't use that for evidence. We have DNA today. Mm-hmm. Her clothes, her purse, um, her tampon, I don't know. Is that fair? Can we test DNA? What's going on? That's when I knew it would never be solved. That, when I heard that back in, what, 2008 or something, that was when I knew. I had little hope before then, but when the murder weapon's been contaminated like that, it's compromised, that, you know. I, and I have to, I'm stunned that someone would do that because it's just, you know, I know this from watching TV. You can't remove evidence like that. You know, mm-hmm. it's just not done. And I'm a lay person. So, yeah, I, I, um, they had no intention of solving the case. It makes it clear. If you go back to um, what we just read and we look at the picture of the late Carol Robstadt, then you, then you look at the most morbid souvenir in the history of criminal justice. Um, you know, reducing it to common talk, that's horrible shit. Next time on Carol's Last Christmas. This guy ran with this guy. 20 years without a new entry in the file, then police start looking in Tennessee. He didn't know until I told him today that and knew each other. We've gone from one suspect to three. This guy was trouble. This guy was trouble. And there was trouble. They're awful cocky, you know what I mean? Like, you're in the country, man. Some tough people around here. Carol's Last Christmas is a genuine human production reported from interviews with friends, family, and experts, and based on official records obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. Lead investigator George Seibel, Chicago Police Department, retired. Investigator and co-producer, Alexandra Daskalopoulos. Investigator, writer, and narrator, Demetria Kaladinos. Voiceover recreation, Justin Holder. Audio mastering and consultation by Paul Gibson. Music provided rights-free by Artlist, Blue Dot Sessions, Motion Array, and Storyblocks. Original music by Verlin Thompson. Graphics by Orlando Rodriguez and Thalia Kalademos. Website and promotional material, Thalia Kalademos and Jim Champis. Our theme song is Criminal by Binge Heard, featuring Katrina Stone, courtesy of Artlist. Carol's Last Christmas is distributed by Radio Misfits. Our sincere thanks to the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press for pre-publication review, and to those who knew and loved Carol and generously shared their stories.